On air. Online. On tap. Union of York's official student radio station. URY. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to this week's edition of How to Break a Radio Station. This is your show here on URY, which over the course of this term will teach you, the listener, how to break your very own radio station. I'm Harry, and once again, I'm joined by Alice and Jess, as well as special guest Ben. Hello. 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 Thank you for having me on. Uh, You're very welcome. And it's in my notes again to plug the fact that we are on Spotify and iTunes as well, the podcast form of this. So do take a listen. And if you listen to last week's, where I was joined by Jacob, uh, Isaac, and Mox at the end. That one is on podcast form as well, and there is an extended version of the interview that we did last week. Today, we are going to be talking about effects, and this takes a bit of a left turn because it isn't directly part of the everyday running of a radio station. Uh, But we've also been going through basically everything else you need to know about recording and mixing, so we thought we'd throw this one in as well. UOI does do a bit of effects, when we do sessions and orchestra outside broadcasts, as well as our audio resources team uses them uh, when making URY's very own jingles. Radio by students, for students. URY. URY. Just like that. There we go. So, uh, what are effects? Well, I'm going to start off by talking about reverb. the dictionary definition of it is the prolongation of sound or, or resonance um, when a sound lasts longer than it would normally because it's in a different space, for instance. And it can be extremely flattering to music, which is why so many people enjoy singing in the shower because bathrooms are really reverberant spaces because all the walls are really hard and flat. And for many hundreds of years, people have designed buildings with acoustics in mind. So Boston Symphony Hall is a great example. It was the first concert hall to be designed specifically um, for its acoustics because of the science at the time, um, having sort of proved that, you know, this is why this space sounds great. but many older buildings have incredible acoustics because although little was known about why music sounded better there, the techniques to make buildings, for instance, churches and other performance venues sound great, were known about and and widely used. So RAs are really used to reverberation. And unless you go to an anechoic chamber, which is one of these rooms that you've probably seen on the TV before with foam on all the walls at different angles, um, where there is it's a completely dry room there is no reverb whatsoever unless you are on that one space um you will not experience sound that isn't affected in some way by reverb so what actually is it well imagine a balloon is popped in a simple room and and sound travels in all directions but arrives at the listener by the most direct route first this sound has not been altered in any way and is known as the direct sound a little later copies of that sound that have reflected off the walls and the ceiling and the floor start to arrive at the listener's ears and these copies arrive one after the other and are fairly infrequent at first they're called early reflections a short time later, there were some more reflected copies of the sound. These may have bounced once, twice, or a dozen times on their way, and they arrive in greater and greater numbers. These are called late reflections. The direct sound always arrives first, followed by the early reflections, and then the late reflections. The inverse square law 
which states that energy is inversely proportional to the square of the distance from the source of that energy um, comes into play. So if you stood two meters away from a source, then the energy arriving at your ears would be proportional to a quarter of the original value. This means that later reflections have lost lots of energy, so the amplitudes of arriving reflections decrease very predictably over time. Um, and a useful measurable property of reverb is the RT60, or the time taken for the amplitude of the reflections to drop to 60 decibels relative to the direct sound, which gives a good idea of the reverberance of a space, and sounds will linger longer in a space with an RT60 of 5 seconds, which is quite high, rather than one of 0.5 seconds. Perpetually, early reflections give us some hints at the size and shape of a room we are in or hearing, um, and the late reflections are everything else. The key thing about these is that they are very dense and perform sort of a wash of sound rather than t taking form as discrete echoes. And the length of a tail, again, will give us a clue to the size and space of a room. So. If we decided to blindfold you and place you in a room you'd never been in before, then you'd be able to make a number of assumptions about what kind of room you were in based on what you could hear without thinking. Not that we would um, do that. There are two different um, main, main differences between close and distant sound in a reverberant place. When a source is very close to you, the direct sound will be louder relative to the reverb and will arrive much sooner as the reflections have a long way to travel relative to the short path of the direct sound. But when the source is far away, the direct sound arrives at pretty much the same level as the first reflections that follow, and they only have fractionally further to travel than the direct path. And if the source is a, a, occluded, or um, there's something in the way of it, then the direct sound may in fact be lower in level than the reflections or may not arrive at all, um, which will make the sound sound very different, distant. Differences in reverb level give us important clues to use when mixing. The relative levels and timing of reverb to add a third dimension in our, we in our mix. What do we mean by this? Um, well, Reverb can give us an impression of a sound being further back or closer. And we've talked about panning and frequency. Well, if you pan something, um, then you can imagine it moving from left to right. And if something's higher in frequency, we generally picture it as being above and something lower being below. So those are the two X and Y dimensions. Reverb provides a third dimension of depth and Wetter sounds um, are sounds that have lots of reverb, and dry sounds have very little reverb. Now I'm going to attempt to teach you about something, but as usual, I don't study this. So you guys, if I get something wrong, do feel free to just jump in. So the first form of artificial reverb used in recording studios was the echo chamber. And compared to a lot of effects, this one is very, very simple. It's just a room. Uh, speaker plays sound into the room and the microphone picks it up again, including the effects of the reverb within the room. These rooms are often designed specifically for this purpose. Uh, they aren't cuboid shapes. The walls and the floor, uh, the walls and the floor and ceiling even, aren't parallel to each other and they're typically made out of stones, bricks or other dense materials. These walls are often covered in several layers of plaster, 
which allows the mid-range frequencies to decay for several seconds. And these rooms are often quite small, ranging from about 1,000 to 2,000 cubic meters. The time delay between the channels will be based on the time delay between the output of the speaker and the first reflection received by each microphone. And this is all combined to give a very natural sound, although because the room is small it has resonant modes at low frequencies, so the frequency response is a little bit uneven. Yeah, so spring reverb is a type of reverb, and it's one of the first forms of truly artificial reverb. It was invented for use in Hammond organs in the 1930s. The first compact reverb effect was created by a division of the Hammond Organ Company in the 1960s, when it became a very popular effect in stillers to this day. Spring reverb is made exactly how it sounds. An audio signal is sent to one end of the spring, or several springs, by a transducer, and this creates waves that travel through the spring. At the other end of the spring, there is another transducer that converts some of the motion in the spring into an electrical signal, which is added to the dry sound. When a wave arrives at the end of the spring, part of the wave's energy is reflected and stays in the spring. It's these reflections that create the reverb characteristic sound. Um, they're very compact and cheap units, spring reverb units, so they're very common on guitar amplifiers. A downside to them, however, is that they tend to twang. On a guitar, it sounds fine. The springs are sparse, fairly regular, and coloured reflection lends the guitar a nice depth. On a piano it sounds okay but gives the note a slight detuned character. Um, drums really twang though, snare drums in particular are very like an impulse so reveal the characteristics quite clearly. Uh, another physical method of faking reverb is the plate. These are still around in studios today and they consist of a large metal plate, usually around 2 by one meters, suspended on springs in a soundproof box. Uh, as with the spring, one transducer introduces sound into the plate and others, usually two for a pseudo-stereo output, pick it up again. As sound travels through metal up to 20 times faster than air, this is the equivalent of having a large two-dimensional room. The edges of the plates reflect sound very well, so the sound still takes a good amount of time to decay. Giving the plate... Uh, that that does not make any sense what I've written down here. Giving the plate gives a very bright, dense reverb. I think that's meant to say the plate gives a very bright, dense reverb. It would help if I could type properly. Uh, as the plate is a regular shape, the impulse response sounds a little tonal or resonant but it sounds good on most sources. Vocals and drums in particular sound especially good with plate reverb. It sounds pretty good on piano too, although the sheer reflection density can make the sound a little bit cloudy. Plate reverbs offer other advantages, like applying various means of damping. A good example would be placing liquids or porous materials against the plate. And by applying these modifications, reverb time is adjustable across the useful range offering the sound engineer highly desired production flexibility. Okay, so digital algorithmic reverb um, is what I'm going to talk about next. And digital reverb affects emulate halls, um, so like large rooms or spaces. Um, and there's like room plate spring reverb, either in stomp boxes or rack units. Um, by the end of the 1970s, the first truly artificial reverb, reverb devices were becoming available. These are still very much around today as both hardware and software versions. 
in digital devices, a network of digital delays and filtering calculate circulate the sound to create the reverb. The design of these layouts is very difficult and it's hard to stop them sounding very sparse, tonal and unpleasant, and cheaper digital reverbs sometimes sound quite mediocre. Good ones sound fantastic but don't come cheap, normally around £1,000. Um, the impulse response sounds more granular than its acoustic counterparts, but it's not tonal. The result is that it flatters sound with a nice even tail, but doesn't clutter the sound. Many engineers swear by algorithmic reverb for just that reason. It gives a nice sense of space while maintaining clarity in the mix. Okay, so the next thing is convolution reverb. And as Alice mentioned a second ago, um, the issue with things like digital algorithmic reverbs is that it's very difficult to design. So convolution was effectively created to counteract that. So it's based around the theory that if you provide an impulse, i.e. a really loud, then very sudden noise that goes very quiet straight after that, and then if you capture how the room responds to that and how it bounces back, then you can learn a lot about how other sounds might behave in a space with that same impulse response. So um, it appears in the form of very, very, very expensive digital hardware boxes back in the mid-90s. Um, and it's basically it's a mathematical method of applying an impulse response to a sound. So it works by when you've captured an impulse response, um, you take a sample of a sound that you're trying to apply the reverb to, and then you multiply that by the sort of way that this other demo sound has tailed off, and then you sum that together over time. So it's taking a transform that you know in the way that the sound and the way that the room works that you know, and then applying that to every single sample of sound every single second to try and recreate that using a known model. Um, it's for that reason it's hugely computationally expensive compared to some of the other methods, but there are some shortcuts to it and also nowadays because of the advancements in computers, the processing power is kind of easily available today. Um, Convolution reverb has become something of a go-to nowadays for engineers, and with good reason, because it allows us to replicate any of the other forms of reverb mentioned before, either springs, plates, halls, or even caves, providing that we have their impulse response, as well as simulating, again, many digital or more fake-sounding things, because so long as you can generate an impulse for it, or, or an impulse response for it, and capture one, you can apply it. There is the caveat, though, that an impulse response cannot capture anything that changes over time. Um, so as in if the impulse response or if the acoustics of the room change over time, it can't really capture that because it, it does everything based off this one sample. And so as a result, many, to counter this, many algorithmic reverbs use things like low-frequency oscillators or LFOs to subtly vary the sound over time. And therefore, convolution reverbs can't perfectly emulate most hardware reverbs because they change over time. So, as that result, as a result of that, they sound less rich and interesting than the perhaps their digital one or counterparts could. Cool. Um, you may remember way back in episode four on this show, we talked about uh, the compression element of this thing called gated reverb. But as the name suggests, there is also reverb involved. And what really made the technique so widespread and popular was algorithmic reverb, which was cheap and took up a lot less space than reverb or echo chambers. Um, and gated reverb is, is not something you would normally hear because it's non-linear 
and so generally each reflection is quieter than the last and there's a downward curve but with gated reverb the signal gets louder and louder and then is suddenly cut off as the gate element of it closes um, I have the option to put it on my voice which you wouldn't normally do but if you give me a few seconds to twiddle some knobs hello um, that is a bit weird on the voice, but if I clap and make it sound more like a drum, then it might sound a bit... <laughs> Tad more familiar. All of these effects are... I've got them all quite high just to really demonstrate them and, and get it across. So if anything sounds super reverb then that's why. Um, there are other kinds of reverb on here, of course. There's this. Hello. Which is hall reverb and this. Hello! Which is called room reverb and this. Hello! Which is called plate reverb and has a very long tail. Um, and there's the, probably the most interesting one, and I don't see a reason to ever need to use this, but it's called reverse reverb and it takes the reverb that would be happening and plays it in reverse after your voice and it's very strange and it sounds like this hello hello yeah it's very weird um the way the way that i'm doing this by the way is is via sends so there's these things called sends and inserts and with sends you send one channel to the effects processor and there is an effects channel that contains only the reverb um, or the effect and no other direct sound and then adds that to the main mix along with the original channel um, and sends therefore have this parallel signal path and are often used for adding reverb. Inserts are slightly different and you take the audio, insert an effect into it and then the output of that channel contains the effect so you change the actual sound coming out of that channel um, and you can think of it as being in series with the signal path so on my mixer for example i have um, several controls on my channel for uh, well no just one actually for the a compressor um, and then if i want to put effects on it then i have to send that channel to the effects and then i have to send the effects to the main output Okay, so the next up would obviously be the practicalities of, well, there are these different types, but how would you actually go about using reverb? So there are a couple of different schools of thought on this. When using reverb, you might choose to either use one consistent reverb for all of your elements, or you might decide, okay, I want a different reverb for each element, each soundtrack, each instrument, whatever. The former is usually done as a send effect, where one reverb effect has a signal from many tracks sent to it, and then you only use one reverb processor to sum all of those together and then add reverb on for the entire thing. Um, this is helpful for a couple of reasons. It means that you can adjust the reverb of the entire soundtrack that you're making, um, and all of the like sort of in the characteristics of it with a single unit, and that's quite nice, as well as also being able to control the overall reverb level. Um, 
it means that if you want to adjust the, uh, it means if you want to adjust it or try a different setting or a different plugin, even you can do so, but without having to go into every single track on bigger mixes. This can go into the hundreds possibly, so it, it can save a lot of time that way and be quite neat. Or alternatively, you can decide, okay, I want to use separate reverbs such as insert effects. Um, or something like that on different channels. And that's still a valid way of working because you can put different elements in different acoustic spaces to help it either stand out or perhaps there's one that just might suit it better. So you can select different reverbs to suit the instrument based on what your preferences are. Another thing that should be clear is that reverb, like um, when it's applied to low frequencies, creates a lot of low end mud and mush very quickly. and because of that, it's not particularly common practice to apply reverberation to bass instruments. A possible solution to this muddiness is simply to apply a high-pass filter for the reverb itself, meaning that only the higher frequencies get passed to the reverb, and all the lower ones that might cause some of that mud get left out and ignored. And that's a useful trick for giving instruments a sense of space without losing clarity, particularly sort of lower-end ones. And it also makes voices sound quite natural and more pleasing because just generally using reverb on instruments and voice particularly voices as humans we're used to hearing people in spaces so having a slight bit of reverb on voices makes them sound a lot better to our ears yeah in in order to choose reverb for a particular source you do need to consider a couple of things so firstly there are dense and sparse reflections which is how many reflections arrive over time a space with many reflective surfaces at different angles, so a church or a cave, will produce reverberation with lots of closely spaced reflections, whereas a simple cuboid room with flat surfaces will produce a more sparse set of reflections. There's also this thing called neutral versus coloured tonal balance, and it concerns the frequency balance of a room. We generally prefer flatter neutral um, frequency responses, that is, rooms that don't emphasise particular frequencies. Small rectangular rooms tend to produce quite a pronounced response, and we'd call that a coloured frequency response. Stereo width is, a, is not necessarily a feature of space, but rather how a particular reverb has been captured or created. If the two channels of a stereo reverb are radically different, it will have more stereo width in the mix, which we may or may not want, and so that's something to think about. You are wild. Now we're going to move on, and I think Jess is going to tell us a little bit about delay. Just a bit, yes. Uh, delay is, is another type of effect, and it involves making exact copies of a sound that are then delayed slightly and summed with the original. And now this is done with several means. Tape was once the most common, and now we use digital buffers. And delays can be set up in one of two ways. In a feed-forward configuration, a single delayed copy is added to the original. In a feedback configuration, the delayed signal loops back into the delay again, causing yet more repeated echoes. Um, and delay effects fall into two basic categories. So they can use short delays of less than 30 milliseconds, and our ears will generally accept that delay as um, being a single sound, so similar to a reverb effect in that it just sort of is one sound with a bit with a bit more color and and feeling to it um, if you accept those abstract words. 
and then there's longer delays that are bigger than 30 seconds and beyond this we tend to hear two discrete sounds. Yeah, so flanging is a technique that utilises short delays and comb filtering. A delayed copy of the sound is summed with the original, which results in comb filtering. Um, this delay time is gradually modulated up and down, which causes the teeth of the comb to move up and down the spectrum. Um, it's called flanging because it was first discovered by playing an identical sound on two synchronised tape machines and causing them to go out of sync by touching the edge, which is called the flange, on the reels. The effect was invented in the early 1950s by Les Paul and later used by artists such as Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles. Uh, another type of delay technique is chorus, which seeks to replicate the effect of an ensemble playing the same note. In a violin section, for example, the players play the same note but never actually exactly hit the same pitches. From this we still perceive a single note but with a thicker texture. Chorus reproduces this uh, using delays modulated by LFOs, or low frequency oscillators, which causes the pitch of the delayed copy to slowly move up and down. This copy is then summed with the original to create the final sound, and many chorus effects use several delays, all of different lengths and or modulated at different rates. So the, effect, uh, the chorus effect is essentially created by mixing the source signal with one or more process copies of itself. This is equivalent to adding more voices to the ensemble. So, short delays can be quite useful in our mixes because they can provide kind of a sense of reverb, but also applying a little bit of emphasis to a sound without the sort of clutter that a full reverb can produce. So it's a good way of highlighting little instruments and little sections without muddying it too much. Some simple early techniques to do this quite effectively were the um, were automated double tracking or ADT, which involved creating a full amplitude delayed copy of a source, usually vocals, about 20 to 70 milliseconds behind, and adding it in, often panned to the opposite side, because that gives a vague sense of space using the fact that there's an offset and the way that our ears perceive sound and space. But um, it also accentuates the vocal as well. And this effect is all over a whole load of albums from the 1960s mostly. So it makes the vocal stand out from a bit from a more busy mix, which is quite good. Um, slapback delay is kind of similar, but it uses a slightly longer delay time and more feedback in the process of getting it to work. So it's a slightly different effect. Another variant is the ping pong delay, where the vocal is usually panned center and then a hundred millisecond for example, copy pings hard left and then a 200 millisecond copy hard right. So here we're sort of emulating early reflections again and almost sort of using our hearing system to suggest reverb in a hypothetical room, but again, without all of the mix clutter that that can sometimes provide. So still more complex examples can be set up using fancy software reverbs, um, but experimentation is definitely recommended because you can get it to sound quite nasty if you don't know exactly what you're doing. Yeah, as with all of the as with all of these things, um, unless you're doing live sound, then definitely worth experimenting and really trying as much as you have time to to try out because you never know what will work. Something might really st make something stand out, and you hadn't thought to use that before. 
Does anyone does anyone have any uh, ex- examples, I guess, of when they've when they've been able to use effects in uh, the past, or particularly interesting effects that they like the sound of? Mm, I mean, any of the stuff that I've been doing, I've found that it's really. Tr- I've personally found that it's really tricky to um, obviously sort of when you're EQing or when you when you're going through the vocal processing chain and stuff like that, you typically end up doing some corrective EQ as well as some aesthetic EQ, just depending on what you like the sound of someone's voice to be. But I've found it's very tricky to do that until you've applied some reverb, because human voices just sound really unnatural if they've been recorded in a really dry sounding booth, because we're just not used to it. So I've usually found that it's almost pointless me doing a whole lot of processing other than just making sure that the compression is right until I've added some sort of reverb later on the process because it's just really tricky to understand otherwise. Mm. I've heard that um, some people when they're doing live sound like to give the singers a bit of reverb um, in their foldbacks so that they a foldback is is what is used so that the singer can hear themselves um, but putting a little bit of reverb in there can give them more confidence and therefore they they sound they sing um better when they that's got, the thing because yeah, they, they hear themselves singing really nicely because they've got this reverb so they're like oh i'm singing great i'm gonna sing really like loud and clear which is what we want that's the thing it's a case of yeah it, it comes down to well as a mix engineer if you're trying to i mean a big part of mixing and recording stuff is actually working with the performers to try and get the best performance out of them possible so if it's just a thing where it's just sounds better to human ears if there's delay on it then yeah but sending some delay through to the singers or whatever to try and boost their confidence and make them perform better no it's a it's a it's a really useful thing to do for sure um a lot of the time, I think, with when doing, so I've done a lot of live sound, um, and w- often reverb come. Right, I've never had a huge amount of time to set up. You don't often have a great amount of time to set up. So normally, <laughs> yes. I'm like, I'll do the, I'll do the sort of bare bones, and then if I've got time, I can work on actually making it sound really nice. And so reverb is one of those things that comes in towards the end, when I just feel like. I could I could get the we were talking about this a bit a few weeks ago um just making the the mix you've set work well together and jam mm. um, oh, that, that's the thing it's that's another good point it's a case of sometimes you can end up with instruments and things that don't really sound like they were recorded in the same place and obviously you can sometimes you want things like vocals to stand out but sometimes you want them to be more of a cohesive package that sounds like it could have been in a room together and you yeah, want everything like to work said, well yeah yeah it's a it's a really good way to kind of because because our brains are dumb and we trust our ears too much it's a really good way to just convince us that it all it was all recorded in the same place by just adding on this reverb thing because it just it makes it sound vaguely like it at which point our brains just accept it even if there are still some imperfections from the recording or any of the processing that's happened so now it, it's yeah. really useful in terms of just making mixes that sound a bit more polished i guess um, the amount of these things where it's like oh yeah we just do this thing and it's kind of a cheap but you know what i'll raise accept it as... that's the thing there's like it's the thing with most tech most radio and honestly most media stuff it's a case of it's understanding the sort of psychology of how we perceive things as people and how the viewer or listener or audience will perceive it and then 
trying to figure out well okay how can we get around this and the fact that people are or are it that's thing i said earlier our brains are dumb our brains are dumb but they're also very used to what sounds normal so it's a case of that's that's why it's so painful to try and get effects right is because we know exactly when something sounds right and when something sounds wrong so it's a case of so long as we cheat very very well then it means that we can cheat but otherwise you end up in some interesting scenarios where things sound slightly off and a little uneasy but you can't quite put your finger on it one of the so this is this is not the most professional thing but you can kind of get away, <laughs> away with it um a bit uh doing so setting up for a church service and um don't ever do this but putting just a <laughs> tiny bit of delay on um people's voices sort of more than you'd want ever want to put into a into a mix or whilst the service was actually happening but so you've got a bit of time when the band's rehearsing beforehand put a tiny mm. bit of delay on and you you this particularly the singles will suddenly start going what what's happening <laughs> i can tell something's wrong but i can't tell what yeah as they just start to... to notice that delay going on that's the thing it's yeah you can't quite put your finger on exactly what it is but yeah it, it really it really does that um I mean, a particular favourite effect of mine as well is, well, I suppose it's not really an effect, it's more of an aesthetic EQ thing. In this case, if I'm... Usually the sort of sounds that I prefer are more sort of warm, rich concert orchestra type, sort of in concert hall type sounds. So usually when I stick some um, some reverb on, obviously because that's the thing, it can, as we mentioned earlier, it can really muddy up the low end because you end up with all these sort of low boomy sounds that just start sounding really wrong when they've got too much reverb on. So one thing I tend to do is, obviously, if you stick a high pass filter on it, you lose a lot of that low end, a lot of that warmth and richness. So I tend to put an aesthetic EQ on just before the, um, in the same stage as the high pass filter, just to sort of boost the warmth frequencies a little bit more just because it then kind of ties it all together and you get some of the richness that you get in big rooms but without and it kind of makes up for having to try and take out some of the low end and some of the warmth that would be there because otherwise it would just get muddy so that's quite nice um sorry if you can hear a phone going off somebody's <laughs> ringing my house it's fine um, um I think, i've, yeah, I've got I've got some more um, <laughs> options on the effects processor on my mixer. Do we want to have oh, yeah. a? So this 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 first one is called early reflections, and we were talking about these earlier. Um, and this sort of emulates those first reflections that you that you should be hearing back. So if I turn this up, I don't know if you guys can hear that. Yeah, we can. <laughs> cool. Definitely. <laughs> How loud was that? That was about right. right. That was about right. Yeah, cool. That's all good. Mm, yeah, yeah I, I've had to You're a bit quiet now. headphones so low that I can't hear myself. So I'm ah. putting these effects on, but I've no idea what they're doing. Um, Fun. <laughs> but yeah. This, this yeah, next no. one is called Ambience. And this is what it sounds like. Hello, Ambience. Mm. Um, this next one is called delay and this is this is this is delay 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 that's that's very distracting voice much more subtle but to sort of demonstrate what's going on i've got all of these sort of set quite high that's the thing i mean it's important to mention as well that obviously all these effects can be used for um sort of voices and in mixes and stuff but also a lot of them have 
um, or you find a lot of use for these effects on things like guitar pedals. Um, when sort of guitarists come in, they're either doing sort of concerts or recording sessions. You'll find a lot of things you in there. You've got a geeky guitarist when they've got a whole box full of all these different <laughs> pedals that we each do a different effect. That's the thing, because I mean, we mentioned earlier that sort of there was um, sort of that Les Paul had like a, quite a big influence on some of the early sort of flanging stuff. But you en you still hear sort of all these effects in like very prominently in modern songs. Like um, I think Green Day's Boulevard of Broken Dreams comes to mind when you're talking about um, delay, because in the opening guitar riff they're playing with the whole delay effect quite a lot and more prominently than it appears in probably most songs that I can think of. So that's quite a good example of that, I suppose. Um, but yeah, so it's a case of yeah. not, not all of this stuff is to be applied just either in the mix or in terms of radio station. A lot of it can be done to just instruments by guitarists. Yeah, that's a, that's a thing to consider when you're um, supposed to be setting the mixes that the, that the players themselves have, have their own say as, and, as to what they want their instrument to sound like. Which is always an interesting thing to deal with when you you disagree or. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, particularly guitarists, because they like because of the flexibility that they get with the whole pedal system. It means that a lot of guitarists have kind of picked out what their ideal sound is well beforehand, and obviously you might like it or you might not. And when you get to the recording thing, so negotiating that is always going to be an interesting one, yeah, and particularly awesome. given that they're always used to listening to an amp. Um, that's always going to be fun that's because thing is that, is that yeah. cameras tend to bring their own amps. The amount of times I've had to, this is again doing doing live stuff. I've had to um, just before something just something starts, just like go up on stage and certainly turn the bass amp down because I'm struggling to get everything else to to stand out because the bass is so loud. Exactly, that's it. But I mean, a, a useful tip, I suppose, in terms of dealing with um, guitarists with their own effects would be to basically ask. Um, there's a, there's such a thing as it's called a um, it's a DI box or a direct input box where you can split off the guitar's um, signal before it goes into it, all their pedals and simultaneously record, obviously, the output from the amp and stuff. But you can also record just the plain guitar's sound into your session at the same time, which means that if something goes wrong or if you decide to change it later, then you've got the initial proper performance of the, of the guitar track, which you can then play through your own combination of pedals or plugins or digital filters or whatever, and then completely change it from scratch and rework the entire pedal chain. So that you shouldn't really, it's not, you don't have to discourage people from using pedals if you might want some sort of flexibility later, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Speaking of pedals, uh, we were talking about flanging earlier. This is what my um, mixer thinks of flanging. It sounds very strange indeed. <laughs> Getting some cool alien energy off that. That's quite mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, it's quite cool. And uh, this is this is what it this is what it um, has for chorus. So uh, here you here you go. That's that's not all, not everything that, that this thing has to offer, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and this is not definitely not the best effects processor in the world. It's not the most expensive mix in the world, but it's got all these onboard effects. It's also got the option for outboard effects, so I can choose to send um, I can choose to send this channel to something called Orcs, and there's some jack outputs um, that can I can then route to a outboard effects processor if I wanted to um, 
and have and have that doing something which could be a, a something better quality or really designed to do one t- technique specifically um i've 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 only ever used uh, something outboard something that isn't integrally part of the uh, the mixer before um when uh when at church we had when i first started doing sound we had a massive analog mixing desk um and you'd use an outboard uh, effects processor that wasn't plate reverb but emulated plate reverb um and you'd have to route things to that if you wanted to use it um mm. although then we right. then we got an x32 and that's got everything <laughs> you could ever want pretty much um other brands of sound desk are available other br- yes but here at UI, we are obsessed with the <laughs> x32 we've not actually used it that much though although get on that yeah, we need to. Well, we, we're unfortunately separated by many miles from our <laughs> X32 right now. Our beloved X32, yes. Mm. Um, but we, we, I do remember us first getting that, and we sat on, um, we had it on a sofa, and ah, yes. Marks was, yeah. Marks was like had the headphones on, and he was he had the microphone <laughs> as well. And I just remember putting in a, a ton of delay and yes. various other effects on his voice. <laughs> That's, I don't. And I don't think he was quite a minor used to the breakdown. way that. Yeah, I don't think he was quite used to the way that um, newer digital desks can just stack effects on top of each other. So yeah, it was as part of our testing to make sure it hadn't been damaged in shipping. We had, I think, I think we had a chorus. We also had a pitch shift, as well as some sort of ridiculous reverb setup. And he was wearing noise cancelling headphones. So then watching him trying to speak into a microphone was hilarious because every time he did, he would sort of, he had managed to get a syllable or sort of like an sort of air eh, out and then just get completely confused by all the stuff that he was hearing back. <laughs> just start laughing. Well, one yeah. of the things that having, having d- delay when it's not done right, when you've got too much delay so that your brain notices it, is mm. that you tend to speech jam yourself, which is when yeah. you're, hearing, you're, you're hearing everything that you said repeated back to you and therefore you're trying to slow down to allow for the repeated version to sort of catch up with you it's a really weird thing that you start to do you start to talk a bit like you've had a bit too much to drink and you're sort of slurred and that's the you thing. just can't get, can't get words out yeah it's because you're, you're trying to effectively think of the next sentence whilst you whilst from what you can tell that you're still saying it or it's still sort of coming back and you're still hearing it so you can't really sort of get the next sentence out as much which is quite entertaining yes if you have any techie friends and too much time it's a very very fun thing to do would highly recommend i i kind of did it yesterday because i had to i had to go on a clean feed call with somebody to help them um record something and (laughs) they didn't have headphones plugged into their phone Ah, and so (laughs) i could hear everything that i said on a delay so I was trying to talk them through like yeah. what they should be doing. Oh god, no, that's that, that's never a fun. That's never fun. That's you have to just one. reach this point where you can you have to completely block out that sound. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to jump in now because we're very very close to the end. So, I, uh, of course, thanks to everybody who has tuned in this week and I hope you do join us again next week. We'll be discussing about how AM transmission actually works. Uh, as well, thanks to Ben for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. You are why. You are why.